What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In season two, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now, your host, award-winning architect-turned-entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. So, thank you all for being here. American Building is a podcast series that shares how iconic buildings come together from the perspective of their developers and their designers. These innovators discuss on a deeply personal level what they've faced in the entire building process, uh, connected to the specific challenges that we have for our cities today showing that they go far beyond location to actually a larger calling. So I'm your host, Atif Kader, and I'm the CEO of Redist, a real estate technology company based in New York and a licensed architect as well. Um, I produce the American Building podcast with Michael Graves Architecture and Design, which is based in Princeton, New Jersey. And I'm excited to be here at Austin Design Week uh, for the special live episode of the podcast. So today our guests are Clayton Taylor and J.R. Gideon. Uh, architect Clayton Taylor is the founder and principal of West of West, which is a design firm based in Portland, and his office focuses on uh, office, retail, hospitality, and housing. And he's a graduate of UCLA and Cal Poly, and JR is a development associate uh, at Lincoln Property Company, a Texas-based uh, developer that is an integrated real estate firm um, focusing on mixed use and commercial development. And he graduated from here at UT Austin. So we'll be talking about and discussing the Eastbound Project, um, so new mixed-use development in East Austin that's under construction, uh, and more broadly, we'll talk about the uh, future of office development and how uh, real estate professionals like Clay and JR are shaping and transforming what uh, offices will be like in the not-too-distant future. So thank you so much, uh, both of you, for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So uh, both of you started out your careers uh, working both in the United States and in Europe. Could you compare and contrast what your um, experiences were and what you learned uh, in both of those experiences? We'll start with Clay. Yeah, so um, my, my kind of work uh, right out of school was uh, working a little bit locally in California, but then uh, transitioning abroad, uh, being in Copenhagen for about a year and then Vienna. Uh, for a few months working for a, a firm there. Um, and I think that part for me, again, it was like early in my career, but it was interesting to start to question the built environment and see obviously how it's kind of being played out in other other countries, you know, especially like in Copenhagen, seeing um, how architecture can be uh, something that really elevates someone's uh, everyday experience. I think at that, at that time, most of the projects I was studying in school were like, you know, uh, kind of top tier, like, cultural buildings or, or uh, churches or things like that, kind of very epic architectural pieces. But it was nice to see um, uh, and start to recognize uh, cities that were kind of finding ways to elevate the office building or a, a simple, like, window experience in a cafe, like, and really kind of paying attention to those things. And I think especially in colder environments like, like Copenhagen, which would be kind of dreary a lot of the time, um, finding ways that the architecture can kind of support and provide shelter and comfort uh, kind of within that whole Settings. So for me, it was kind of an interesting way to see what's what's going on there. And I think when we started coming back to the U.S., it was more of, um, I think, opening my eyes more to other types of projects than I probably would have just kind of read about school and, and expanding that, that horizon a bit more. That's a really good point that you brought up in terms of this focus on design details, not just a, not just necessarily for large, epic buildings, but uh, buildings of all scales and all types. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, JR, for yourself, you worked in Italy and the U.S., so compare and contrast that for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I accepted an internship in Italy when I hadn't stepped foot in Europe yet. So um, I think so I was, first trip over. Yeah, I think it was 19 or 20. I took a, took a flight over there, landed, got picked up by um, 
be my boss at the time um, at the train station and quickly got integrated into a um, small studio, which I was, I was telling on Tiff that um, about half of which uh, spoke English. So it was kind of like breaking down barriers through design and yeah. kind of learning what um, cultural importance translated into design elements over there and kind of being able to compare and contrast that to what I was studying in school at the time and built projects in the U.S. So, uh, JR, you quickly made uh, the turn from uh, design focus uh, in your career to development right after UT. Could you talk about the thought process that led you to make that directional move? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I came back my, my last semester of school um, after finishing working at a firm in uh, a residency in San Francisco. I got to really kind of get integrated into the full process. Um, got to got to see a development through from concept design all the way into kind of DD. And that really kind of gave me an understanding of seeing how all the pieces um, plug into the process. Mm -hmm. And coming back from then, I, I actually um, took an internship at LPC in Austin and started that's Lincoln Property Company. Right, that's Lincoln Property Company who I'm with now and, and who we're working on these with. Um, and through that kind of um, internship, I was able to uh, plug into some really cool sites that we were working on in Austin mm -hmm. and kind of looking at them from a new perspective, but also being able to um, kind of bring some of that design background in, in a new way. So it's it kind of a fascinating change and, and from a new side and uh, kind of just took it, took it by storm from there. So we mentioned uh, earlier that Lincoln Property Company focuses on mixed-use developments in urban areas. Could you dig more into what that uh, strategy entails and and where they might be going in the future. Yeah, sure. So uh, a majority of what we're working on right now um, in Austin, at least downtown, um, you know, when we find a site, we're looking at what's the highest, best use. Um, obviously, this city is um, starting to deal with a ton of growth and new people moving here and a lot of need for both housing, office, retail, um, bringing vibrancy to the city. And in turn, a lot of that is translated into mixed use. So, um we're, we're looking at it from the point of what, what does the city need um, in terms of infrastructure and, and how can we kind of provide that as well as um, create an interesting urban role. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Clay, for yourself, you worked in California at uh, Morphosis and Rios Clemente, uh, and then you eventually decided to start your own firm. How did you know that it was the right time to make the leap uh, and go out on your own? Um, Primarily, my, my co-founder and business partner telling me to take a leap. That was the biggest <laughs> one. Um, so that's, that's exactly what you did. Yeah, yeah, someone literally saying, pushing, telling you or pushing you off the button. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, I think for, for us, we started a small practice that was primarily looking at projects in the commercial world, so doing small-scale retail. Mm -hmm. um, and we were doing them in kind of like a lot of different cities. So as opposed to like single-family residential? Yeah, common way yeah we, I think we just... Working on Morphosis, both both Jai and I there, we, we were doing kind of larger urban scale projects mm -hmm. that were navigating both design language and, you know, an architectural project with some element of the public. Maybe that's a public park, maybe that's transit, maybe that's something. But there was this kind of like, uh, kind of objective way of talking about design work as it relates to the public world. And so we kind of took that into like the retail setting, which is like an extremely like hyper-focused moment of when people, uh, an architectural space engaged with the public. Um, and we were doing a lot of that work, and that was kind of building while Jai and I were uh, both working at, at Morphosis, and then I had moved on to Rios. We were doing like kind of larger, um, uh, building a larger projects in the Hollywood area of, of, of LA. That's called moonlighting, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> working on your on at, at your kitchen table at night, but um, we, we were uh, so, sort of slowly building a directional practice. And I think what what we were looking at was um, we wanted to get enough experience. Um, from projects and working with other firms. We also wanted to start to chart our own path. Mm -hmm. And the practice is a dialogue between the two of us. And I think we had, at that point, we were already working together for probably like seven, eight years, just because we went to undergrad and grad school and worked at Morphosis together. So I think we felt that we we were strong enough in our dialogue to kind of build a practice upon that. And we knew the types of projects we wanted to get into. I think all the experiences we had kind of had like a nice moment for the cliff where <laughs> Jai went forward first and then he was like, all right, we got to just do this. And then, yeah, that was about five years ago. And yeah, we're, 
about 14 people now. And when you were getting started, what was the kind of the mission or the thing that you wanted to accomplish other than the particular asset class or the, the type of projects? Um, I think we really wanted to get into, um, I think we, we had worked enough to know that it takes a really long time to make buildings. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think when you're fresh out of school, like, okay, I'm going to design a project. It's going to build next year. Mm -hmm. Walk into these doors. It's going to be great. <laughs> More like a two, <laughs> to, two to five year process, <laughs> depending on the scale of work you're, you're looking at. So I think we've tried to build a practice on um, that kind of longer, longer turn of, of things. And Eastbound is, is a good one for us where we started this more than two years ago as kind of a concept and idea with, with uh, the client group and kind of finally walking into it today and we're photographing it today, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, Jai's on site and I'm here uh, as we kind of do the podcast. But we've been trying to build a practice that kind of looks at that longer term and really tries to build big projects or build projects that have a sustained kind of presence in them and maybe create kind of an urban, uh, urban scale move. And we're finally seeing that kind of come out. So, so let's pivot over to the project, which is eastbound in Austin. So yesterday, um, all three of us had a chance to uh, check out the site and then the larger area. Um, my strongest impression is that it felt a lot like Philadelphia or Providence. Uh, so what were your what are your larger impressions and how do you describe East Austin to other people? Uh, maybe JR can explain East Austin. Yeah, sure. Because you have a yeah. very insider, and I'm like a very outsider. Well, yeah, maybe we can do one yeah, each. Yeah. Um, I would say people here, I think, that have lived in Austin for a little bit, not maybe a long time, but a couple years or so, see East Austin as a place to go get a great cocktail, find a good hole in the wall for some food, which is 100% true. I think the um, other dynamic to East Austin that still exists today and actually kind of is showcased in our project in many ways is there's a lot of cool craftsmen and manufacturers and artists that um, have an amazing presence in East Austin and really kind of drive the whole, um, you know, vibe that everyone's seeking over there. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's interesting because we, uh, our practice operates out of Portland now and Los Angeles. So Portland has like a East and West kind of situation going on as well between mm -hmm. the, parts of the city that contrast with the downtown core. And, and that's kind of what we saw in Austin. We first started coming out with East Austin is different. It has its own kind of vibe going on. So as we start to look at doing new buildings out there or like a larger project like Eastbound, it was more about how do you kind of map context or understand context and understand what makes East Austin East Austin and, and sort of support the building in that. Not just take a project that you would do in the downtown core and kind of plot it out there. So a lot of the discussion of the project was how do we um, – kind of embed the context or the uh, kind of uh, the setting more within the building and the decisions that we're on. So. so the site itself is on uh, Cesar Chavez Street between the airport and downtown. Can you talk about some of the, the challenges and the opportunities that that particular site um, brought to bear as you started the design process? Um, the the interesting thing about the site is it's kind of the edge of East Austin. It's like at that furthest point. So it kind of became... A little bit of a, a frontier within how you look at East Austin is kind of further away from some of the other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so we knew we had that that happening, and I think the uh, Cesar Chavez um, thoroughfare is, is very fast road. So looking at how do we create uh, a campus-like uh, uh, setting, uh, but sort of protected from that street in one way or another. So that's how we kind of get this inverted courtyard uh, cut that goes between the two buildings. And the reason for a campus is that it actually has multiple buildings and structures at the site. Yeah, exactly. And then we knew that it's going to be sort of away from a few things for a little while. Um, we're just trying to provide enough things that builds its own identity within that right. site. Making it a destination within itself. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of um, awesome restaurants and, and you know breweries in the area as well as, you know, you're only a stone's throw away from um, the Colorado River. So mm -hmm. I think in, in which has multiple names, we right. Town Lake, Lady yeah. Bird Lake. Um, but I think all those things kind of make it a desirable location. But as Clay said, because of its kind of further proximity from some of what people would describe as a like quarry Austin, you know, we wanted to create a destination that would stand on its own and kind of service its own tenants. Um, yeah, and like most most real estate equations, it's like a location thing. Right? Mm -hmm. But when you start to break that equation a little bit and say, we're going to be in a place that not a lot of other projects like this are, then you're starting to build in parameters that you need to kind of grab onto to create the project, right? It's not about, it's in the middle of where all the officing is right now. It's it, it, it's kind of a, 
antithesis to that a little bit. So trying to understand that we're breaking some of those those rules with the location, but then finding ways to like as you break those rules, they support the decisions of the design as much as possible. And I think I think from our perspective too, we're now seeing um, you know companies and different tenants and restaurant groups that are desiring that kind of location and that kind of project. So I think it's catered to that. That seems like the an interesting inflection point where uh, the decision isn't necessarily driven by a lower rent. It's actually a desire for tenants to, to be there. And it seems like this project is one of the first ones to, to allow for that to happen. Um, so the name you chose was uh, Eastbound, which is, um, I think, very reflective of the move of the office core for Austin Eastbound towards the airport. Um, what were some of the, the alternate names, JR Towers, anything else? <laughs> we had a few, and uh, if anybody listening has been a part of the naming process of a project. <laughs> Everyone agrees first try. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's, it's many rounds of iteration until kind of either something sticks or it just makes sense. Um, we had a long list, I think, between our group and we worked on this project with the core group. And then I think we even That's put based in, in a company based in Los Angeles, right? Yes, they have a presence in Austin, but um, out of California as well. And then I think we put some of the names in front of Clay. My name that I put forth was The Elm because we had this beautiful, um, historically protected uh, or heritage elm tree in the middle of our project. That was kind of the forefront of um, what this courtyard became. And um, I think the moral of the story from my um, my idea of naming it the elm tree is that elm trees can, can die or be cut in half <laughs> overnight. Um, they, they were clearing some power lines in the area, and we came back the next day half the canopy was gone. And this was not part of the internal construction crew. This right. was, this was uh, external. Yeah, a, another agency kind of moving through clearing trees out. Because the whole plan was to preserve this tree this whole right. time. And right. we built that courtyard around the tree. And then it came out one morning, half the tree was gone. <laughs> Straight up, just gone. <laughs> so, moral story, we're happy we landed on eastbound. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it feels much more like a permanent name because it would be a really bad omen as you're starting racing if the, the tree dies. Yeah. So, I think that's actually probably a good idea. We did plant a bunch of trees in its honor. Yeah, so, we were yeah. <laughs> filled the courtyard back up. So, Clay, the, um, the site is a really amazing one. Um, what was the, the prompt that uh, Lincoln Property Company gave to you when they approached you? Were they very specific about, we want two buildings, we want to be like this, we want this, or they literally said, you do your thing? It, it, it pretty much was was open-ended because I think the way we treat these or these projects uh, with our clients is we, we want to be able to maintain some level of curiosity about the site, mm-hmm. both on our end and on the clients, and, inter- and entertain that for that early part of the process. So we had some zoning requirements. Um, we knew a yield of, of office and parking that we, that we needed to hit. Mm-hmm. Um, Yield means the number of spaces, right? Number of number of parking spaces and number of uh, or amount of square footage you're trying to hit. Mm-hmm. Um, which you there's a ton of like sculpting that to get that to work on site. Uh, but both Link and the core group, it, it was like saying, "Here's the site. Here's the zoning requirements." Um, and again, we were coming in from from uh, out of town, so we're trying to like kind of absorb all that and understand that. And then I think the discussions turned like that. That curiosity moment was like saying, "Well, what should the building be? Like, where where are we going with this?" Like. We're not just going to copy a glass office building and just dump it out here. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it would just be unsuccessful. And it wouldn't really, uh, we'd be kind of missing the boat. Uh, so I think some of those early discussions were, were trying to look at the context and look at um, kind of like larger warehouses or like um, factory style kind of uh, shed buildings that have this kind of big, um, big space feel with kind of larger, almost like factory windows, like referencing that typology a little mm-hmm. bit and seeing what if we did a building that was like that. So that, that like a warehouse-style building is probably something you normally would find in East Austin. Mm-hmm. But how can you sort of take that, that typology that exists and start to work that enough with the, with the requirements that we have um, into something that becomes its own special kind of place or and eventually an office building for, for workers. But, um, yeah, I was trying to find a way to question the site and question what the building can be. Mm-hmm. And, again, we're trying to build the, the design DNA of the project with the team and make sure everybody sort of sees something interesting in it, you know, and, and create a moment that that's not like others or other buildings that would be out there. So that's kind of our, that's what we usually try to bring to the table is, is interesting curiosity moments. So, so during the process then of uh, preparing the design, there's another architecture firm that was on the project as well. Uh, Gensler and they're the architect of record. Could you explain um, how that, 
that works in terms of having two design firms together? Yeah, so uh, most of our work, uh, we're, we're working as design architects with Architects of Record, like, mm-hmm. like Insler. Um, and the, from a timeline standpoint, we work with the client and discover the project early on with them and keep the team pretty trimmed down as we are sort of iterating through early versions of the project. Um, then we'll do an initial uh, set of drawings um, to then present that to Gensler and our client and and start to bring everybody on, on board with the project. So we essentially do a lot of like really heavy conceptual work in the beginning. And then as the project becomes more and more finite and detailed, Gensler starts to increase their, uh, their uh, commitment to the project. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end, um, everybody's still going to job site meetings. They're, they're involved early on. We're involved later on. But we, we kind of like shift our, our weight of who's doing the most production work yeah. on the project. And the, the goal then is that you're building the knowledge of two architects into the project from the beginning to the end. So there's a kind of a deeper design discussion about the project. And there's also like a, it might be a technical discussion depending on the executive architect. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're trying to build all that together. And I think you're just entering it knowing that a project of that size is going to have a lot of people on it. So you're trying to kind of, everybody's clearly kind of wearing their, their cap and, and understanding how they work together. And so you, you really need to bring, bring the teams together as part of our role as well. And play nice. Yes. <laughs> Which it, it was, and it was a great uh, process of so uh, let's talk about the construction. So uh, building during COVID is a challenge for a zillion different reasons. One in particular is supply chain. So anyone that's renovated a personal home uh, over the past year, past year recognizes the difficulty in getting, say, a uh, refrigerator and taking that six months to actually arrive. Uh, so on a much grander scale of building a massive office building, how did you prevent uh, supply chain delays from completely derailing the, the progress of the project? I think that this project fell into a few interesting timelines, mm-hmm. you know, COVID being one. I think in terms of supply chain, we're catching that more on the tail end rather than kind of in the middle of it. Um, but I think in, in terms of sourcing and securing materials, we were able to do most of that kind of before the, the mass, the, the big supply chain issues that we're seeing today occurred. Um, but I think we also had an interesting approach to kind of um, constructability and building materials. Um, if you go and look at some of the images of our project, you'll see that they're done out of these uh, incredible um, kind of custom concrete panels that were um, created in uh, a factory called Redondo in San Antonio. And so Clay can probably talk to some of the other design elements. I, I think we got lucky on, on a lot of things in the project. It's, it's a it's a big concrete precast facade, which is pretty rare uh, nowadays. And, and precast means literally cast before the panel comes to the site. Yeah, yeah, they're huge, big panels that are, are trucked to site, and then the, the facade went up, and you know, not, not I think like a couple, like about a month or so, they kind of just once they start arriving on site, they just kind of click it. Comes the other way. But you're using a local company in Texas Concrete, which is kind of its own, like. Really thing and Redondo who doesn't really do concrete work so them delivering a concrete uh, aesthetic and letting us work with it mm-hmm. which was really great I think when we got into the interior work of the project and some of the, the higher touch feature elements like uh, interior finishes furniture artwork all that stuff we we shifted um, I think that's when that's when we were really starting to look at like supply chain issues mm-hmm. and the advice was anything you can get local American-made or made on in this continent generally <laughs> would be helpful as long as it crosses the, the ocean, um, which is also a really good story because you're finding local artists, mm-hmm. local uh, manufacturers. So like Delta Millworks did all this like kind of coil wood throughout the project, and they're like a block away from the from right. the site. Yeah. We're still um, getting mahogany or tea. Some some things, yeah. And then, um, but it's also a great. It just it makes it a good decision for the project, regardless of the supply chain issue. Then. Um, uh, all the furniture, a lot of that is, is American-made or, or sourced uh, close enough, you know, which I think ends up getting some more interesting pieces that have, like, a little bit of a, a, a nicer build quality. So we actually upped our, our furniture a little bit by, by doing that process. Um, and then um, also using local artists for um, exhibits throughout the project. So Warbach, who's a kind of larger um, lighting installation um, artist, they, they did a really big – or two big light sculptures on either entrance of the project. Right. Um, they're right across the street. They're across the street. But they install projects all over the country, but it was just, again, they're like in the backyard of the project. So yep. to use them. And then our muralist, too. Um, Emily Eisenhart did a really incredible six-story mural kind of at the at the 
back of the parking garage, but one is the face of the courtyard. Uh, yeah, and it, and, and uh, I, I think it's interesting, in, especially in the design project. You're like you start to open the catalog. Of where am I going to pull some great materials? And this one was like everything's got to be local. Like how do you kind of source that? And you, you start to get this really great story of how those decisions kind of line up in the project, from lighting to interior materials being sourced locally to artists and you know, the project or other parts of the project we have in there too. So. But back back to the timing question, real quick. We we broke ground on this project in June seventh of twenty twenty, mm-hmm. um, and I think every office project at that time uh, that was breaking ground or under construction had to take a good long look at what they were doing because they knew that you know well I guess they knew nothing at the time of what the world to come would be over the next year or so, but it gave us a chance to kind of look at. Um, kind of the health and wellness of the building as a project, which thankfully West of West had put in some kind of uh, great bones in terms of outdoor circulation and access to outdoor spaces. But it gave us a chance to kind of go through and look at our mechanical systems and fresh air intake and stuff like that. that that's going to overall kind of um, be one of the positive impacts of COVID and making us look at our project in a new way and kind of start to invest in, new technologies and, and upgrades that's going to make the tenant and um, user experience in the end much more sustainable. Yeah. So it feels like July or, or June of 2020 is ages ago in terms right. of the progression of the, the pandemic and our response to it. Um, but what I think about that highlights really well is the overall reality of uh, developers and the incredible amount of risk that they take uh, on a project uh, in order to actually make financial and construction decisions several years before they're actually delivered. Um, uh, I just wanted to point that out. Uh, and then, uh, Clay, when uh, a, like when our uh, listeners uh, come to the site to take a look at it, um, give them a preview of what they would be seeing as they come, say, uh, to the main entrance where um, uh, the restaurant relocated, and then as they walk through the campus. What are the materials? What are the, the things that they're seeing? Um, the building's kind of built on contrast in a way. So the, the biggest thing you see as you pull up is the, the precast facade, mm-hmm. which is a gridded, panelized system around both buildings. Um, it has a pretty big, it has like a very kind of heavy, large-scale presence to it. Um, but then there's, you'll start to find these moments that are contrast. At the, at the lower level, as you walk into the project, um, for lack of a better term, there's these what we call wiggly columns, which are like these columns that are kind of falling in and out. Um, which they're are actually wiggling. They're not wiggling. Yeah, so. they're, very, they're very much wiggling <laughs> up. Um, but that under level of the building where the, where the kind of pedestrian zone is, um, that part is sculpted a lot, a lot more. It has the columns that, that are at an angle. has like a warmer wooden soffit that moves around it. There's actually clear glazing in there um, around those levels. And the idea is that you're sort of contrasting the kind of rigorous grid above with something more playful below. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where you start to get um, some interesting moments where the there's kind of like a building scale experience and kind of a pedestrian scale experience. And it provides a richer turn there, I think, when they're a little bit more, when there's a difference between those two things. Um, so as you drive by, I think you get one feel. And then as you walk up, I think right. you get a totally different one. And, and the architecture at that scale, pedestrian scale, kind of integrates with a really nice landscape touch at the same time that kind of creates that experience. Yeah, and TVG was our landscape architect. And they, they kind of followed the... The, the wiggly column component a little bit where the, the landscape, the ground plane is really uh, sculpted as well. So there's lots of like pockets to, to kind of hide or or kind of places where movement's kind of zigzagging in uh, that courtyard area. So it's, it's, it's an activator, uh, kind of in, again, in contrast to the rest of the, the building above. And then the, there's all, the, all kinds of subtleties to the, the concrete tone's a little warmer, so when the sun hits it, it's got kind of a, a warmer tone, not so much of a cooler concrete tone. Mm-hmm. There's a uh, subtle undulation of the facade. When you really get up to the building and see it, you start to see that the, the facade panels are kind of folding in and out slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it's all these kind of little moments in the project that I think um, start to take a, a concrete building that has that 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 warehouse kind of uh, starting point, and then how do you start to unravel that and make it kind of uh, a little more interesting of a place? That's really cool that the material that you chose, concrete, is one that um, people imagine are focused on like bridges or highways, non-design, uh, not high design uh, elements, but the fact that you're able to choose a uh, really beautiful aggregate and uh, add uh, tones of color to bring a whole other read to the material. I think that, that's a pretty cool aspect of it. Uh, and uh, I'm going to take a break here to let our listeners know that we'll be having 
the wonderful Pascal Sablan of the AJ Associates on the podcast next month. Uh, she was the winner of the 2021 Whitney Young Prize by the American Institute of Architects, and that's an award given to one architect uh, each year in the United States who embodies social responsibility and actively addresses relevant uh, social issues for our country today. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com so you don't miss uh, any of our episodes this season. So uh, let's take a big picture from uh, Austin eastbound uh, to um, what uh, what our listeners can imagine office is going to look like next year, the year after, and beyond that. So uh, office design and development is markedly different because of the pandemic, as we've talked so, so far. Um, and one of those is the blurring of uses. So um, all of us have probably spent a good chunk of time um, in the, the work from home setup that I've had as well. Uh, and on the opposite end, there is now a trend, like in this project, to include um, residential or hospitality aspects to an office development. Could you talk about um, that in more detail, including, for example, uh, the large amount of outdoor space that you've included? Yeah, definitely. I think this project, um, the partnership greatly benefited from having, you know, someone who typically focuses on commercial development and then the core group who is primarily um, a hospitality group. Um, and I think we were all able to take cues from each other throughout the design process and approaching this project um, from a very experiential uh, standpoint. Um, I think when you think of the traditional office, it's not a destination that people are looking forward to on Monday morning necessarily, but we wanted to try to create an experience that was similar to going to a new hotel for the first time or a new hotel bar or restaurant within the first floor of a hotel. So from our perspective, um, we wanted your day to start from when you entered into the lobby, Mm -hmm. hearing music, being able to go to a coffee bar, being able to have an impromptu meeting in the lounge and really curating, curating more of a, um, hospitality field in a traditional kind of standard office project. And I think that, um, throughout the design, as Clay mentioned, that was kind of one of our guiding points. And anything that we did from the fitness room to the locker room, it was definitely elevated with um, kind of higher grade finishes that fit that bill, but also give you the comfort that you seek when you go to a, a new hotel um, and also you know, reflects um, design and, and kind of finishes that are up that level. Yeah. The, the hospitality touch, I think, was something that we started with primarily because I think Core was, was bringing that into the discussion. It was also kind of general. Uh, kind of take it really bad. Yeah. And that was like, again, that was pre-pandemic when some of those decisions were, were made. Right. Um, but I think it became stronger over the last, um, you know, few few months here to try to really establish a place that I think does, especially people enter like the work from home situation a bit mm-hmm. more. Um, it's, it's, it's creating a place that does inspire, a place that is comfortable um, as a counter to working from home, right? So, um, I still think there's a lot of to be figured out within how the typical work week is, is going to play out over the next um, uh, kind of a few months to years from, from now, right? In terms uh, of days and times and people. Yeah, like yeah. but I think when you start to look at the actual office place or the workplace itself and, and what the office building can be, I think it's it's trying to say, well, what, what is it offering? What is it mm-hmm. going to provide? Um, obviously, it's a place to meet your peers and it's a place to, to, get, to get some work done, but it's, it, should, it should also be a place to inspire or it's a place with just like really great light that your apartment doesn't have or something, or um, it's a volume of space that's just like really enjoyable to be in with like great music. Like there can be like really simple things, um, I think, that, that support that comfort within a place like that, but it's definitely not traditional like lay-in tile office, you know, right. I, think. I think you're trying to find ways just to, to break apart. I think we we expect you know people that are going to continue to be in offices from here on out are going to are going to be seeking experiences that are more catered in that way than the traditional setting. So, um, in terms of the uses, we talked about restaurant incorporating other um, other things beyond the office component itself. Um, so back in New Jersey, I had the opportunity to tour Bell Labs which is this utterly massive um, but underutilized suburban office complex that was essentially um, the laboratory for Edison uh, and the subsequent Bell, Bell Labs company. Uh, and uh, the developer in that situation was able to convert this huge office complex 
to traditional office, co-working, a startup incubator, destination retail, restaurants, and even daycare and uh, like senior care all in one um, one site. So similarly, Eastbound is incorporating um, things beyond that retail. Could you talk a bit more about um, what that rationale was and, and how you hope destinations like that will draw more, more tenants to your site? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it goes to what we were just touching on is the experience they're seeking, mm-hmm. what they want to get out of, you know, going to a destination, um, like a destination office like Eastbound, that's, you know, not in your traditional sense in, you know, the heart of downtown or in kind of a building district. It's kind of out on its own um, in terms of office. That's that's changing right now. And there's other projects around it that are being developed. But I think it's really creating a, a place where people can, you know, live a full day, um, not just eight to five, but, you know, eight to midnight. Mm-hmm. And they can kind of have that experience um, and kind of blur the lines of, you know, what the traditional eight to five is or nine to five. And I, and I think another thing we look at kind of a project like the labs or like an older, older building reposition or older office campuses in general, like the skin of those buildings or the shell of those buildings is essentially very like nondescript, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have any, um, kind of intention to it. And I think the, the project here at Eastbound, you know, the, the skin is kind of instructing some of the interior programming that we're using today, which is amenity spaces like a lounge, interesting lobby moments, and, and uh, restaurants. But in the future, I think that skin is going to start to create other kind of programs um, that sort of imply the programmatic use inside a little bit differently. So kind of curious where office buildings today might be in like 20 years. I mean, mm-hmm. when it's, it's a less general building, like it's got a little more specificity to it, uh, which I think can lead to maybe some other um, other uses that might, might help uh, kind of longevity of that, that building. And that's in contrast to the, the design aesthetic, say, of office buildings you described earlier, which is a nondescript glass box that literally could be anywhere. Yeah, right. Yeah. So creative specificity, I think, creates um, some design moments in it and, and creates a little interest and um, kind of gives more specificity to how you use it potentially. Mm-hmm. Not to say that it has to be like one restaurant forever, but it could become something else. Um, and then also how you know how it creates outdoor spaces and things that support the building around it, um, which is pretty critical as well. So besides uh, the East Austin project, uh, LPC has a large portfolio of office that's um, within the core downtown area. Could you talk about what your um, projections or your thoughts are in terms of office moving towards distributed clusters of different office areas as put in different neighborhoods, for example? Um, as opposed to everyone traveling to Midtown Manhattan or Downtown Manhattan or Central Austin, where you see that that is going to shape your investment profile. Right. I, I think that it, it really boils down to kind of what tenant group companies you're targeting with the building that you're both designing and the location where it's placed. I think that there, there's always going to be companies that want to have a presence in CBD or kind of more um, central downtown location. Um, Definitely you know, more finance, legal, those types of industries. Right. I, I think some traditional, you, you see a lot of tech users that like to have kind of a central presence. Mm-hmm. And we see that in Austin as well. But I think with projects like Eastbound, there are definitely uh, companies that are seeking a different experience. And whether that's because they have employees who live on the east side or um, they just want to have that experience and they want the east side to be more tied with the company culture than downtown. It's just more of what fits the company profile, where do they want to fall within kind of the urban realm of the city. And I think for a lot of um, tenants now um, and businesses within Austin, um, the east side is kind of becoming that place. You start to create those interesting alternates to what the, what the core could be, right? right. You, know, you start to create the more decentralized idea of where work can happen. Again, I think that's falling in line with potentially where, where work's going. You know? And especially like with, with Eastbound, creating a building that's kind of uh, uh, referential or kind of built upon the context, you know, you start to get a little bit of interesting, uh, more interesting moments where the building's related to that context and you're changing the location more. So I think you get more variety out of where those buildings are and what they become and what they the potential support. So. Which I think would have a lot of secondary benefits, for example, people spending less time traveling to work and also less traffic. Yeah. So uh, the last question that I have for you is, um, in terms of the technology that you use to design, develop, decide where you're going to be uh, investing, um, 
over the past year, there's been a growth in venture capital money in real estate overall. So the largest industry, probably the slowest to uh, innovate and change uh, in the United States. And particularly a lot of that money has been moving towards innovation and design and construction and also the financing uh, of buildings. Uh, for example, with the, the company that I've started focuses on financing. Um, could you talk about some of the ways that uh, you see innovation being integrated into um, the processes that, that you focus on in terms of design and development? Right. Uh, sure. I think that Within LPC, this this really started, at least for me, um, in terms of looking into these different companies and seeing what innovators were doing within kind of our space and, and affecting how they could potentially affect and benefit our projects really happened during COVID. I think there was somewhat of a reckoning in terms of um, at least older traditional office space. And I think a lot of smart entrepreneurs kind of um, saw an avenue for creating um, apps and different technologies that could reprogram these spaces mm -hmm. and give them new use and activity and kind of give landlords um, the benefit of being able to reprogram these, not in a traditional sense, but kind of create value um, in what people would have seen as a space that was, you know, potentially not going to be used in what manner it was before. Um, I think for Eastbound, it gave us the chance to really enhance the building experience. Mm -hmm. um, I think both on the owner side and also in terms of design, but most importantly in terms of the tenant day to day, like now we're incorporating, you know, access technologies to where you can pull into the garage and you don't have to touch a door or button until you get all the way up to your office. Mm -hmm. Now that might've been more pertinent during the heart of COVID, but it's a, it's a benefit of, you know, smoother entry and egress than we have beforehand. And I think there's other things that are folding into that in terms of, um, you know, both uh, related to kind of amenities, lounge, cafe, you can order coffee from your phone through kind of one of the apps that we've been partnering with and they'll cater for your company and kind of help manage company events. So I think through the process, um, a lot of these innovators created new opportunities to kind of enhance this traditional workspace that we've kind of referenced throughout this podcast. I think also seeing them, when you look at like reposition, building repositions, like mm -hmm. old office buildings in the downtown core that are like, they're, they're just relatively vacant or underutilized. Right. And I think seeing different um, you know, capital partners or other people look at those types of projects differently mm -hmm. is really, really great because that's like a ton of like existing built mass that somebody needs to do something with. As opposed to focusing just on new construction. Right? Yeah. And I think when you look at the American city and uh, depending on where you're at and what, what city, Austin, Portland, mm -hmm. you know, Nashville, looking at some of the older building stock and how do you, can you make those um, really exciting again? Um, which I think has to do with like just looking at the problem differently. Like if you just keep treating it with like traditional metrics of what the office building should be or how it's funded or whatever, I think if you start to change some of those in, in, in any kind of, uh, position within that hierarchy of those projects, um, if you start to create some stuff that's really interesting, it can be uh, another way to look at kind of parts of the city that are just are sitting right in front of you. So mm -hmm. to me, that's like like using a different lens to look at the uh, problem. Kind of yeah, cool. absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us today, both JR and Clay, on this uh, special live recording of the American Building Podcast. Can we ask just a couple questions to begin? Of course, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. That I had was um, actually I just looked it up on on Google and there's some updated photos from when I, I think I was having to be walking in that area, hiking around in that area when it first started. And I was like, oh, what's going on here? Connectivity. You talked about like internal to the your development, you know, catering to the um, connectivity to the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if some of that is in your design because of. Uh, city ordinance or so, but as far as like connectivity, especially with walkability or bikeability, because you got that central machines and a great restaurants across the way and mm -hmm. very close to um, the high bike trail and, and right. the, the bridge that there's, you know, re, that they're going to have that pedestrian. So anyway, does that also, y'all are involved in that too, as far as uh, sidewalks, streetscape, um, scooters, you know, designation, things like that. Yeah, providing you access on the site was, was, was part of it. Um, previously, I think you had to go to Tillery or down further to kind of connect back to the 
on the street behind us. Uh, but we provided a new connection where Allen Street hits the back of the project. You can you can start as a pedestrian from Cedar Travis and kind of walk through the project to Allen Street and then back to to, to the like back area. Um, so like providing some of those south access two north south connections as a pedestrian through there was was sort of critical. We just like weeded into the project. You know, it was like a, a benefit of of looking at that site. How can we like open it up more? Um, I think also trying to Cedar Travis is just like a really busy street, especially right there. Um, at, at, at certain times, it's just, there's cars flying by. So trying to make sure we're pulled back from the street so the pedestrian does have a sort of uh, comfortable place to be, I think is important. Uh, the building probably, I think, could have been closer to the street, but we actually pulled it back a bit. Um, and then also, like benches or landscaping, I guess? Yeah. Little plaza or mini plaza. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a split between the two buildings, and the, the outdoor furniture is still on its way on a ship somewhere. I think that was the one piece we couldn't find. <laughs> but that, that uh, is taking uh, taking over the whole central area. So there'll be an open courtyard that comes in. Uh, tables to work at, um, yeah. places to sit and have coffee in the morning before you actually go up in the office. So it kind of creates a nice buffer from the streetscape before you go up and into the office or into the building. And then to your point about um, bikes and kind of proximity to the hiking bike trail, I think this we certainly plan the biggest kind of um, hike and or sorry bike um, storage up area that we've we've done in a project um, yeah. as of late. So it's a place where you can come into the project, store your bike, put your bike shoes or equipment in a locker, and then you have you know access to showers and yeah, whatever there's, else. There's all the stuff to fix your bike in there too. Oh, right. It's all an in, internalized like uh, you know, bike support substation. So because uh, we all aware of that the, the new. Uh, I guess pedestrian bridge that they're going to be building. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, that's going to be really yeah. cool. Yeah, that's going to be yeah. an awesome addition. Um, yeah, the goal is you can ride your bike to the office and then um, fix flat tire if you need to. You can shower mm -hmm. up, well, and there's also lockers and everything there. So was that goals, or was the city pushing for that? Yes, they see it was just for a for a requirement of it, but we actually like doubled that size quite cool. a bit. So it's enough that can really uh, support a bike population, not just like. Uh, you know, there's a couple of bike stands out front, but it's like creating uh, the bike the bike amenity as part of this like hospitality package. Which is yep. kind of cool. What do you find from the projects that you've done in Portland in terms of uh, how office tenants use bike space? Are they empty? Or are they packed? Like, what is it like there? They're packed, and I think that's uh, after living in Portland the last few years, it, it's kind of and doing uh, some office projects there. You know, we'll do a bike hub for like 280 bikes in a building that's like the same size mm -hmm. as. as Eastbound, and the, the bike population supports it. Like we'll even like remap how you enter the garage so like bikes can come in and not be worried about a car as they drive in the, in the parking ramps. Um, so there's a lot of that, which is really cool to see. But it took a lot of infrastructure for Portland to get to that point where the bike commuter felt comfortable enough to ride through the city, and then individual property owners, you know, supporting that bike culture at the kind of end, the terminus of their their journey. Right. So I think. This project is kind of doing that, that terminus uh, work right now as, you know, supporting the potential of more bikers out there. Um, and I think that that's kind of the goal with uh, with some of these office office projects, the more newer ones that, that, we're, that we've been involved in is like, how can you kind of stretch out uh, the amenity package to be not just like a great place to have a coffee, but like a functional kind of uh, commuter uh, amenity as well. So people from New Jersey, we really love our cars, but I can tell you that uh, people in Texas do too. Texas, like, <laughs> there are some similarities. Uh, is uh, uh, office buildings in Jersey City, which is the fastest growing urban part of New Jersey, are absolutely incorporating uh, the bike and multiple means of arriving other than just driving your gas guzzling car uh, to downtown. Yeah, nice. Uh, please. Uh, go ahead. You first. Um, I was going to say, I have so many thoughts and questions for you guys because I lived directly across the street from this development as it was being built, and I did not know the topic of this podcast. When <laughs> but I was like, wait, Yeah, so the three little bungalows that you guys might have seen between the two restaurants right there, mm -hmm. lived there for three years, uh -huh. including when this development started, um, and then I guess uh, the one next door that had been going for a while already. Um I think my biggest like, reflection point is I didn't know any of these things about y'all's building as it was being developed, and I think that the development being in a pretty residential, directly next to a residential area, 
brought up a lot of questions of like, why does our community need this? What what is this offering to people like us that are living directly right here? Um, obviously, everyone that owns houses directly right there is stoked, but everyone that's renting them is like, I'm not gonna be renting this place in here anymore. Um, but like, do we really need more creative office space? As a creative person in Austin, I can't afford creative office space. Like, how does this give back to the community? And uh, it sounds like there are a lot of offerings that I would love to go check out about a building like this. But creating that dialogue for like the years plus that you guys are building there, you know, I think that space before was a kickboxing studio and this like large scale succulent farm. Like, really cool cultural pieces of that neighborhood. Um, how do you create that conversation and let people? also put their input into what they'd like to see there, as well as, like, having good attitude about developments like that popping up in their backyard. Right. That's an excellent, excellent question. Yeah, that's a a great point, and I think that um, finding avenues of dialogue with neighbors is important because just as, you know, we're trying to coordinate uh, hopefully a respectful construction effort, it's also important for you to understand what's going to be there and, you know, what offerings it's going to have to your point because, you know, unless you're tied into the industry you might not know until it's totally finished. I think that's a great question mark in terms of how we can do a better job of community engagement, but also just education and outreach on what's happening with the project. And I I think also like office buildings traditionally in the core um, have a, have a pretty, pretty kind of small uh, like relationship to the kind of community around it because it's (laughs) their their neighbors are just other office buildings. So it's like, you know, uh, but in a project like this, I think, one of the big things was trying to create that public corridor that splits the buildings up. I think from a zoning perspective, that whole site could have been solid as an office building, but actually providing that relief was a big piece. Um, and I think that's what's kind of interesting as you see buildings, office buildings kind of pop up in different locations. Um, it is for a creative tenant generally, but I think there's also um, rethinking how those ground levels are, are supportive of their communities. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity there and it like, it supports the building. I think usually people that are, uh, funding the project or interested in that, it's just like connecting those dots a bit more. So yeah. that's what could be kind of, again, next wave of office that starts to be built in different locations or renovating old buildings into something else. I think questioning those those ground level commitments to the community um, are super supportive of what that what that should be, especially if you're thinking outside the core. So I'm a city planning commissioner in Hoboken. Um, so it's a relatively small but a wealthy city in North Jersey across from New York City. And there are, from that experience, there's basically two means to do um, what you're describing, but both of them are rather dated, and there are things that are changing about them. So number one is uh, when there is a construction site, uh, there often is signage out front that says, this is the owner, this is the designer, um, and this is the um, the very brief description. Um, oftentimes, it's too late because the project has already started at that point, and oftentimes the names are a LLC, which is a like a child and a child and a child and the actual developer, which heals some of the um, kind of reality of what's going on there. So New York City's uh, Department of Buildings is really, really forward thinking. And what they started now doing is QR code activated um, uh, tags where you can actually go and get a really data rich um, visual and also uh, more detailed information. You can really just print on an 11 by 17 sign. That is one area that's seen a lot of positive feedback for a lot of development that's happening in uh, particularly residential neighborhoods in New York City are now seeing more creative office come in, like Soho and Tribeca are the really um, kind of blaring examples of that. Uh, and I think the other one is the, the means by which people in an area are able to provide their feedback, and that was much earlier than just the signage. Uh, and in this particular context, it's usually city planning commission meetings that are once uh, a month on a weekday evening, people have their work and kids and all their lives. It's, it's tough to have people be able to come uh, and wait several hours in order to actually be able to speak. Uh, and oftentimes those are typically people that are, at least in Hoboken, it's the owners of incredibly expensive townhouses that have very particular particular views and often uh, Oscar-worthy performances about how they're, I was joking yesterday about some of the, the um the conversation lines that you hear as city planning commissioner in a wealthy city. The expression is called NIMBY, not in my backyard. Uh, And um, what we found is by turning those meetings into Zoom or other um, video formats and allowing people to sign up in advance for slots of time, uh, like like five five minute slots, 
has really changed the profile of who is coming to these meetings. Um, so, for example, Hoboken is a very young city. Like I would say I'm actually above the median age. It's like median is 34 or 35. Uh, and uh, we found that the people that are coming are much younger and have a very different pro-business mindset as opposed to a very protectionist mindset, which we often found was the, the kind of the brunt of what people were talking about uh, in those meetings. I think those are two um, two ways that I'm seeing change actually happen. Um, but I think why the last one is the legal requirement is, at least in uh, Hellwoken, for example, is that you notice people that were within 100 um, foot distance from the center point, uh, or rather the edge of your property. Uh, but in the case of a really large project like uh, Eastbound, 100 foot may not actually be sufficient. There, there probably is different rules in Austin for that. But I think um, then looking at the underlying a legal framework and say talking to like a city council person who often are very receptive, particularly in election years, to what people have to say uh, and, uh, and trying to get that adjusted or changed um, is another way. So, for example, Jersey City, what they've decided to do is uh, remove um, a, a large um, a system of as of right zoning and make it much more uh, required to go to a public hearing system, a city council system. I think Seattle does that as well. Um, which allows much more for contextual um, responses and feedback, uh, feedback like that. So I think the more that there are opportunities for people to participate in the way that makes sense for them in their, their daily lives, as opposed to having people to adjust to some slow-moving hierarchical system, I think we're all going to be better off for it. We're at time, so if anybody needs to leave, including speakers, we can, but um, and, and don't feel like, shy about it. I would love to ask a couple more questions too. Sure. Thanks. 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 My question was actually along the same lines, but a lot more about the sensitivity of the cultural side of the East Side and how diversification and gentrification and all of the other, you know, occasion words that have happened over there that are make it sort of a sensitive area of town. Um, and just whether or not you guys have spoken to people that I feel like we've kind of gotten into a little of that and this sort of difficulty of reaching the community. Um, but if you did have any interviews with any, like, first of all, you're using a lot of local artists and people that are friends, so good for you, and I think you need some great choices on that. But um, if you did have any, like, sort of early conversations or um, reach out to any organizations about some of the cultural groups that are represented in that area of town, I'd love to hear about it. But if not, then I would love to spin to any sustainability or environmentally friendly um, sort of modifications you've or considerations that you put into that building. Yeah, 100%. Um, so I actually came onto the project, um, about at the start of concept design. So more or less the programming and kind of layout was somewhat being put into place. So I think this was kind of, um, after stakeholder meetings, you know, would have been useful in terms of, um, uh, applying your question and, and into action. I think in some of our longer term developments that we're doing around town, we're, um, definitely, making an effort to engage with neighborhood groups and kind of getting their input and educating them on the project and hearing their feedback and concerns and, and definitely making our best effort to do that there. Um, but in terms of kind of design, uh, sustainability, um, one thing we didn't touch on was um, well buildings, which um, really for us became apparent um really in the heart of COVID, they, they kind of came out with a program that was in direct response to COVID, but there's kind of other categories that also are sustainability initiatives across the whole building. So I think from a sustainability standpoint, we definitely saw after um, kind of the highest marks in both well building and the building. Um, and I think we're going to hit those marks. So that was definitely an, an effort on our part. And we knew that um, for this project, those were both important things to kind of try to achieve. Yeah, I, I think the something that, that we've seen in, in Portland, just like kind of touching back a little bit what you were saying, was the design review committees where I think there's one way for the community to engage like kind of at a policy level, but also I think community engaging on a design level. Mm -hmm. Design workshopping um, that's hosted by the city, so they really truly create like neutral ground for people to discuss the design. And it'll be like Super aesthetic discussion about like your building's too shiny. And the architect has to like defend it. And it's uh, it's like takes you back to being a grad school or something. I think those are really good discussions because I think in, in some of the urban planning discussions, um, I think aesthetics aren't discussed about enough. 
or atmosphere or like uh, population feel, you know, and I think um, at least within our work and what we've seen in Portland um, processes there, it's like, I think we're interested in trying to find ways for that to be part of the discussion or planning mm-hmm. project as well. Not just like how many, how much square footage of retail are you putting in, but like, is this building going to feel okay or not? Or, or, or how, how can we kind of find input there? So I think that's something uh, at least on the designer side, we're always trying to find ways to do that, but the mechanism for it can sometimes be kind of tricky. Um, just technically gathering people to talk about something. And design by committee and all of this. Yeah, but, like, but, but, it, but it can be managed and it can be, um, it can be worked on quite successfully. Um, I, think it, I think it does come down to having someone that creates neutral ground mm-hmm. and then providing the like work session time, not just presentation of a project, but a true back and forth. Uh, this is what we're thinking of doing. This is what we can do. This is the limits of the project in terms of like you have to, you have to do so many things. The project just doesn't make sense. Like it doesn't work. Um, but also, community needs to have so many things, or does that make sense for the community, right? So I think um, at least with our work and, and projects as we do as we move forward, is just trying to find ways that you can like build that dialogue. Mm-hmm. Architects and designers love to do that stuff. I think uh, but sometimes it's just kind of tricky, depending on um, like gathering folks and trying to get get all the right voices in the room. I have one more question about the um, creative office space. So maybe this is more a question for people involved with leasing, but like, is is precedent and subsidy given to actual creative tenants, or is it just do you have a creative lean to your business? Like, I know that that is what it is declared that it's for. Perhaps unforced. That's a great question. I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I don't think in Austin, creative offices and enforces is something. It's more of a marketing class. Yeah, right. it's usually yeah, it's a broad term. To your point, it, it sounds great. It's, any, it's anything, <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it's anything that's not what they call Class A office, which would be the highest, uh, most expensive uh, office building out there. So you get cheaper office, and then usually there's something um, within that that's making it. I think it opens up the category. But it doesn't have to check all the boxes of traditional office, which again I, I think is really great because it starts to open up what office can be and who's going to be in it. It's not you know, like when I was younger, it was like office is like you know wear a suit and tie. It's in the tower. And it's downtown. You know, like uh, so I like I like the I like the term and I like that it basically just kind of uh, rips the label off office a little bit more. Um, but again, that's a design problem that should be like worked on, right? Like what can what can it become? Um, which, which I think is, is kind of cool. In some cities, like again, referencing Portland, there's a there's an industrial heritage zone where our office is, and um, you can office there, but you have to be a maker of some sort. It's a zoning requirement, actually. So architects are considered in that category just barely, and then, <laughs> and then uh, lawyers are not. And so your business is uh, allows tenancy within that location, but they, but it's uh, it's protected in terms of there's true industrial manufacturing going on, like light industrial, mm-hmm. uh, maker spaces, uh, like there's a tile manufacturer next to us, and it's like really great handmade tile, and then architects, and some certain app developers will to be there as well as makers, uh, but the whole area, if you're going to office in it or build office in it, you have to find tenants that fit the mm-hmm. zoning requirement, and, that, and I, I think that happens in other cities probably, but uh, in Portland, I just know it because it's like right, it was part of like our lease, like when we got our space, which is kind of cool. There is an interesting other way of approaching that as well. And this is one that uh, New York City was looking to do before the pandemic, uh, which is commercial rent control. So taking the idea of controlling rents on a residential side through a a particular system and set of rules, and there's many criticisms of what that is, particularly in New York City, um, but applying that to commercial. And I would say developers and investors across the spectrum in New York felt that was going to be the, the apocalypse for commercial um, commercial development and investment in New York City. Um, but none of it actually ended up going ahead because the shift ended up being on the pandemic over the past few years. But with an entirely new or, or lar- a largely new city council, a new mayor, a uh, new governor, there actually might be moves towards that. And I, I wonder um, what that could do to uh, potentially allow for, like you mentioned, creative uh, tenants that are uh, priced out of particular areas, and if that would either help or exacerbate that issue, depending on where and how that's applied. I wonder if you get subsidies to be able to convert different buildings uh, for office use. Maybe. And if there'd be more of a 
again, distributing what the office and changing what the office can be, there would be support for that. Which would be kind of cool. I know it's a different financial model than, than like doing a development project, uh, but uh, that's that was actually, kind of exciting, actually. Right. That's really interesting. Um, uh, I, I'm sorry, I keep on bringing up New York, New Jersey examples of those that I'm most familiar with, but uh, in particular, in response to the fact that there's a large oversupply of hotel uh, in New York City, um, before uh, Governor Cuomo has, was resigned or left office, um, there was uh, planning in the works for uh, state-level uh, subsidies to uh, allow for the hastened approval and conversion of excess hotel to other uses that are actually needed. So in this case, it was residential, but that, that logic could be done in any other particular switches where you um, often have a long, onerous process of doing that. Um, it really touches on the system of uh, incentivizing uh, real estate, which is a peculiarly American idea, is this, uh, this notion that you take um, public resources or taxpayer funding to incentivize or encourage um, private economic acti activity to deliver a public social good. So across the United States, uh, incentives that are like tax credits, tax abatements, grants, low interest financing, um, they uh, top over $100 billion a year of all of these programs. Um, so and oftentimes they've had huge benefits in the transformation, say like a city like Newark, which isn't very far from where I am, but um, there's also like a, a darker side to it. So for example, like Opportunity Zones, which is really... Um, well-recognized and well-thought-about um, um, program from a few years ago. Um, the areas that are designated for, uh, for receiving a certain benefit weren't always the ones that were that really actually needed um, that money because of the way certain uh, criteria were um, applied by governor's offices in different states. So it, it touches on this really, really complex morass of policy um, that I think like as a a nerd of architecture and design and finance is really fascinating. So if you want to hear the behind-the-scenes stories of how uh, iconic buildings in America have come together, subscribe to the podcast on uh, Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever it is that you like to listen. And uh, please check us out on iTunes and rate and review. We all know that real estate is a really tough industry to make it. So how can professionals uh, stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Uh, you can hear from me, the team, and Michael Graves, and many of our spectacular guests like Clay and JR on how we made it where we are. So grab our exclusive guide, Seven Tips on How to Stand Out uh, in Your Field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. And finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind, and we must reach out beyond the boundaries that we create and the boundaries that we see in order to help build homes and communities. So today, JR, Clay, and I have made donations to the Trail Foundation, which advocates for and sustains hiking and biking trails throughout Boston. So I encourage you uh, to support their worthwhile work as well. So my name is Akhtar Kader, and this has been the American Building Podcast by Michael Pierce. Thank you.